Hello, I'm Matthew Bay, a senior analyst at Stratfor, a Rain company. This podcast is brought to you by Stratfor Worldview, Rain's premier digital publication for objective geopolitical intelligence analysis. Sign up for the free Stratfor newsletter at worldview.stratfor.com. Welcome to the Stratfor Essential Geopolitics, powered by Rain. I'm Emily Donahue. What would it take to stop completely emissions of greenhouse gases within 30 years? Certainly political will. But beyond that, here with answers is Stratford Director of Geopolitical Analysis at RAIN, Rebecca Keller. Rebecca, it's great to have you back on the podcast. It's great to be here. Can you tell me for the audience exactly what the IEA roadmap to net zero by 2050 is? Absolutely. Um, So it's it's kind of layered. So the IEA or the International Energy Agency is an intergovernmental organization. And what their roadmap is, their their net zero to 2050 roadmap is a recommend, not a recommendation, but it is a description and evaluation of what exactly would be necessary from policy action to technological innovation to changes in social behavior that are required for the world as a whole to hit net zero emissions by 2050. It is not something that countries need to sign on. Rather, it is sort of a reality check for countries that are currently evaluating their nationally determined plans that are part of the Paris Agreement that was signed five years ago. So we're sort of at the five-year mark for the global, the, the landmark global climate change effort um, that was that was signed in Paris in 2015. But we're seeing how progress is, is, is going. And this evaluation by the IEA is showing just how difficult it is going to be to hit that net zero by 2050. And that that number is important because it's sort of the generally accepted timeline for the world to sort of stay under that 1.5 degrees Celsius rise in temperature that would keep the most severe um, impacts from climate change at bay. Rebecca, those are pretty severe climate change predictions. So what does the roadmap specifically outline? So the roadmap outlines changes that are necessary across a variety of sectors. It says it describes what's required. So, for instance, if the world in this one path were to reach net zero by 2050, all new oil and gas projects would have to stop. We could have no oil and gas projects approved following 2021. Same goes for coal mining. Electric vehicles, we need to hit targets of 60% of new car sales by 2030 globally. They would need to be electric cars. And by 2035, we'd have to stop selling internal combustion engines. We'd need to change the behavior of using heat and what powers heat sources around the world. We'd need to significantly increase the renewable energy electricity generation capacity and and eliminate coal and and even natural gas uh, projects or adjust them to carbon capture projects. Behavioral changes, uh, people are going to have to turn their AC down or their heat down. So in in developed nations, um, I know we live in Texas, really like my AC in the summer, that kind of behavior will need to change both on the individual and a societal level. And we're going to need to see some rapid innovation in terms of technologies. 
after 2030, in order to hit those really ambitious 2050 net uh, net zero goals, we're going to need to see technology that's currently in the developmental or nascent stage hit commercial viability. So there's a lot of uncertainty in this path, but it is what is required to meet that really, really ambitious net zero goal by 2050. Rebecca, earlier did hear the U.S. Energy Secretary talk about that innovation. But more specifically, I think what didn't get discussed was what this would mean, such innovation and such massive changes on the personal and national level, what that would mean for the oil and gas industry. Could you talk to us a little bit about that? For sure. Um, I don't really want to say the writing's been on the wall for a while for the oil and gas industry, But quite frankly, the writing has been on the wall for a while for the oil and gas industry. It's just a matter of how fast the nascent energy transition takes place. So we're looking at technologies like electric vehicles, like wind, like solar, becoming cost competitive with traditional gasoline powered vehicles or um, coal powered electricity plants, certainly with looking at that going forward. So it's only a couple years away, for instance, from cost parity um, between certain electric vehicle models and gas powered cars. So we're looking at what we thought would be a slow moving transition. Now, what the roadmap has the potential to do it's not going to force countries to follow it. Um, In fact, what the roadmap shows is that even with some of the most ambitious plans already in place, we're not going to hit this target. But what it will do, it it will help catalyze, it will accelerate the speed at which companies, especially oil and gas companies, are pressured to change behavior and diversify their operations and their investments. Um, We've already seen companies like BP really shift their portfolios away from oil and gas investments and towards greener energy investments. We'll see more of that in the future. And this this report will act as another uh, pressure lever um, or valve. And we'll also see um, an increased pressure on oil producing countries and oil producing governments to accelerate their own diversification plans. Uh, Saudi Arabia and, and their Vision 2030 plan comes to mind when thinking about the pace that those need to occur in order to, to sort of reduce the dependency uh, a number of nations have on um, oil and gas revenue. We talk about the oil and gas industry, but you know a lot of the greenhouse emissions come from personal vehicles. And you did mention that we would need to change our driving habits and our leaf blowing habits and everything else. But it's more than just an industry change. Absolutely, uh, to hit the, the the extremely ambitious goal of net zero by twenty fifty. It needs to be an across-the-board change. And quite frankly, there's not the political will at the moment for the policy change across the board. There isn't the individual will. um, And this has always been a problem with um, climate change mitigation um, policies, climate change mitigation uh, behavior changes, is that the impact of the behavior, the impact of the policy change, that effect is not immediately felt. And therefore, there is there's often in in sort of the short term nearsighted view of of how, frankly, and for for good reason at times, how political and societal decisions are made. You you don't necessarily see that trade off. And reports like the um, the IEA roadmap help sort of visualize the extent of change necessary um, to perhaps spur a bit more and pressure a bit more change 
going forward. The estimates in the roadmap, what do they mean for the fight against climate change impacts? For sure. And and I think I've been alluding to this throughout the throughout the conversation we've been having, but but basically what it means is that we're not we're in all likelihood not going to meet the target of, of net zero by by 2050, which which makes it much more difficult as a globe, as a world, to keep under that 1.5 degrees Celsius target that's been set out um, by numerous scientific um, estimates as sort of the the ceiling that we want to keep under in terms of of climate change impact. Um, so it, it's going to mean you know more frequent storms and whatnot. But what it's also going to mean is you know looking at the different speeds of development. This is, you know, going to put a bigger chasm between the developed world and the developing world, especially if the developed world seeks to try to hit some of these more ambitious targets. There's the money, there's the funding. We're coming out of COVID. We're seeing a lot of stimulus measures targeted towards green energy infrastructure. And that's the kind of thing that's going to be necessary to to push these kind of plans along to even, you know, start down that road or that roadmap. We'll we'll see the developing world, so India being being the key leader among that, pushing for increased funding um, and increased support from the developed world because their transition as their as as these developing nations develop and and get more middle class, consume more, use more energy, get more connected to electricity, are going to have a harder time reaching those kind of net zero emissions. They don't have the benefit of using um, sort of the established technology. So it's going to be a balance on the international stage between trying to hit this incredibly ambitious target of 1.5 degrees Celsius and then also the the international relationships aspect of unequal access to technology, unequal access to resources, and, and frankly, an unequal recovery from COVID that's also going to impact things. All of these goals, they need, they need to be start, all of these strategies that are outlined in the roadmap, they need to be started now. Or, or quite frankly, yesterday. Um, but the reality is the world is still emerging from the COVID pandemic, and it's emerging from the COVID pandemic at different rates. And it's going to be 2022 before a number of countries are even fully through their vaccination campaigns and have the chance to reemerge economically um, and get back on their feet. And so with that, um, they're going to lose more time. So it's just this great imbalance that I think is going to continue to manifest um, through the coming decade. Um, and we're going to see that that chasm between the two grow moving forward. Alternatively, countries that emerge more quickly will potentially have the um, incentive to innovate more rapidly because they can corner the global market. Yeah, there's the incentive to innovate, but it, it, it's where that focus goes. There's another key sort of hurdle that even the developed world is going to have to come over. Commodities are extremely expensive right now, and that's going to be a big hurdle over the course of the next six months to a year in terms of expanding the infrastructure and the manufacturing needed to accelerate um the the growth and the adoption of these technologies. So if you're looking at EVs, for instance, all of the material that goes into batteries, the copper, the lithium, the aluminum that goes into cars, the rubber that goes into the tires, the semi the semiconductors and the chips that are needed to run the car, all of those are either extremely expensive right now or in short supply because of the supply chain disruptions 
and the fact that the global economy has been turned on its head and is now trying to emerge from COVID, all of those are going to make it much more difficult to rapidly accelerate not just innovation, but the adoption of existing emerging technologies like EVs. And so that's going to make the sort of the start of this, despite the, the efforts, the stimulus efforts to go forward, even harder going forward. So there's a lot of hurdles against the fast start that needs to happen even in the developed world. And there's even more hurdles for the developing world. Rebecca Keller is Stratfor Director of Geopolitical Analysis at Rain. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you, Emily. If you like the Essential Geopolitics podcast, you'll probably like the Stratfor Worldview newsletter, especially because it's free. You can sign up today. Go to worldview.stratfor.com. That's worldview.stratfor.com. I'm Emily Donahue. Thanks for listening. Thank you.